Today's sermon comes from Ruth 4, 1 through 12. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of this and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was custom in the former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all of the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and that belonged to Kilian and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all of the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house, like Rachel and Leah, who together build up the house of Israel. May you act worthy in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. We've been in this book of Ruth focusing on mission the mission of God, the mission of God to our neighbors. And we see through Boaz's kindness and through Boaz's mercy, uh, we see Ruth and Naomi redeemed. And Boaz, as a, as a representative of the remnant of Israel, of faithful Israel, we learn a lot about the church, the new Israel, and how we are likewise to be uh, agents of kindness and, and mercy towards our neighbors. But now we arrive in chapter four of Ruth, and this is the climax of the story. And it's, we, it's here that we see in, in great beauty and climax a picture of Boaz as kinsman redeemer, but more than that, a picture of our ultimate redeemer, Jesus Christ. And, and just like Ruth and Naomi were redeemed, we see that we too, in the same way, need redemption and are redeemed. What we're gonna find as we explore chapter four is this amazing picture of our kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ. And so tasting redemption, tasting the redemption of Jesus on a, on a daily basis is the motivation is the, uh, the, the drive for all that we've been talking about to reach our neighbors. Let me say it this way, that you proclaim to your neighbors the redeemer that you proclaim to yourself every morning. That mission is an overflow. 
So when we talk about, as we have, entering our neighbor's sorrow and seeking their good and becoming their refuge and bearing their burden, all these things we're called to do are first and foremost the things that our kinsman redeemer Jesus does for us. And out of overflow, we go on mission. Mission is a response to what Jesus is doing for us. So what kind of redeemer do you proclaim to yourself and to your neighbor? First, a sacrificial redeemer. In the beginning of chapter four, we find Boaz meeting this this nearer relative, meeting this redeemer who is legally in line to redeem Ruth and Naomi, right? Remember, Boaz is not the legal or rightful redeemer. There's a nearer relative. And so he finds this nearer relative and he basically lays out the situation. And he says, listen, Naomi is about to sell her parcel of land the parcel that belonged to her deceased husband, Elimelech. And so he asked this redeemer, will you buy it? Now understand that the reason Naomi's gonna sell it is because she needs to eat. She's poor. So she's liquidating her assets to get money, to put food on the table. When Boaz asks this redeemer if he'll do it, what's his answer? Yes, I'll do it. And then Boaz goes on a little bit further. In verse five, look what he says. The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. Now this nearer redeemer shifts a little bit, doesn't he? In verse six, what does he say? I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Now what's going on here? This man was okay with the land acquisition. And his thought was, listen, I can take care of a, of a poor old lady like Naomi. I can do that if I'm gonna get the long-term payoff of a field, right? I'll, I'll do ministry to the poor if there's a little bit of, a, of a, a payoff at the end that I acquire this property. He was fine with that. But then when Boaz said, well, you'll also acquire Ruth, and potentially a child with Ruth, it flips because now suddenly if he, if he gets Ruth and a child with Ruth, now suddenly that land would go to the child. And so this man does the math and he thinks through all the sacrifice and all the time and the money that it will take to provide for Ruth and Naomi and a child. And at the end, he'll get nothing out of it because this land will go to the child. And he says, ah, costly ministry with no personal payoff. Forget it. Now contrast that with Boaz. Boaz, I mean, you almost sense it in him. As soon as the man says no, Boaz says, I'll do it. I'll do it. Costly ministry with no personal payoff. Boaz says, sign me up. Sign me up. Let me give you a little bit of a picture into the heart of Boaz. If you go back up to chapter three, In verse 13, Boaz is explaining to Ruth that, Ruth, I need to go talk to this nearer relative that's the rightful redeemer first. Listen to what he says in verse 13. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Now that reads pretty bland in in our English translation, but the word there, willing, in the Hebrew is to take great delight and pleasure in. So Boaz is saying, listen, if this nearer relative 
will not take great delight and pleasure in redeeming you, Ruth, I will. And so you see Boaz, it's almost like he's, a, he, he's just chomping at the bit. He's hoping that this rightful redeemer will say no because he has this great delight and joy to redeem Ruth and Naomi, no matter the cost. And it'll be costly for him to redeem. What a picture of our great kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ. When Jesus is reflecting on his impending death, he says in John 10, 18, no one takes it from me. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. What's that say? Jesus did not go to the cross in obligation. He willingly went to the cross. He willingly paid it all. Listen, Boaz had time and money as cost. Jesus had his life as the cost. And what's amazing in John 10, 18 is we learn that he went there willingly for you. It was not out of obligation. He said, I will, I want to, I'm going. And then we read in Hebrews 12, 2, Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Delight, pleasure. As Jesus looked forward and counted the cost, and it was great, he took great pleasure and delight. Why? Because he knew that at the end, he would get you and me, that he would receive his bride. I did a wedding yesterday. And as I officiate weddings, I always, I do the same thing every time that I'm standing up there with the groom and the doors swing open and there appears the beautiful bride with her father. And I always, I look there and as soon as she starts walking down, I look at the groom and almost every time, and it was true yesterday, the tears start streaming down this man's face. And he's lighting up with delight and joy as his bride walks down the aisle. And the reason I look at that is because every time for me, it is a picture of Jesus Christ, our bridegroom, who looks at us and with great delight and joy and pleasure says, yes, I can't wait to have my bride, the church. He takes delight, he takes joy to willingly go to the cross to redeem you, that Jesus is a sacrificial redeemer. Listen, Jesus never says to you, look how much I sacrificed for you. You better show me that it's worth it. No, Jesus says, look how much I sacrificed for you. Look how much I love you. How much I delight in you. How much I take pleasure in you. That's your redeemer. That's your kinsman redeemer. Jesus Christ. Second, what kind of redeemer do you proclaim to yourself and to your neighbors? Not only a sacrificial redeemer, but a generous redeemer, a generous redeemer. With great delight, Boaz agrees to redeem Ruth and Naomi. And we see here this, this very formal ceremony, right? There's, there's elders gathered around. There's the sandal ceremony of handing the sandal to the other. It's a very formal ceremony that is, that is commemorating this, this big day, this redemption. You say, well, why are there witnesses? What are they witnessing? What do Ruth and Naomi receive as part of this redemption? 
What does Boaz purchase for them? We see in verse nine, it's, it's land. In verse 10, it's a name. So land and name. Now, in our culture today, you hear that and you yawn because we don't quite have the category of what land and name meant in ancient Israel. So let me explain what it meant in ancient Israel and let me talk about the significance of what it means for us today in our current setting. So in ancient Israel, land and name were were everything. In Genesis 3, so you've got the Garden of Eden, the land, this beautiful land that God had given his people. Genesis 3 hits, sin enters the world. Adam and Eve leave the garden. And then what does God do? He, he, he gathers a people called Israel. He rescues them from Egypt through the Red Sea. And he takes them to what? The promised land. The promised land was flowing with milk and honey. It was, a, it was to be the land that God was going to redeem. And so whenever you see the promised land, it was ultimately tied to God's redemption eventually of the whole entire world. And that's why the promised land in Hebrews 4 says that's not the ultimate rest. That's just pointing forward to Revelation 21, new heavens and new earth. Ultimately, not just a plot of land in the Middle East, but the entire world being redeemed, right? And so land is, is not just about inheritance and financial, financial acquisition. It's Land was tied to the redemption of God because God is going to redeem this physical world and all of it. So, so Naomi receives land back when Boaz purchases it and redeems it. And then we see second that Ruth and Naomi receive a name through the generous redemption of Boaz. In fact, chapter four is all about preserving the name, keeping the name alive. If you look at verse 10, it's, preserving the names of Elimelech and, and Malon with the inheritance. And then verse 11, um, it's, it's the desire that Boaz's name would be remembered in, in Bethlehem, right? So there's this desire to keep a name alive. Why? Well, a name, behind a name was identity. Name was attached to identity. And the reason that they wanted to keep the name alive is because a name was attached to being identified with the people of God, being identified with the family of God, being identified as one in the, in, the, in the scope of God's redemption and plan for the world. Which is why it's not insignificant in this chapter that this nearer relative doesn't have a name. Right? Boaz has a name, this other man doesn't. Now, clearly he had a name, he had a family, he probably had children, but the author's making a point here. Because this nameless redeemer and his desire to protect his legacy, he gave, he gave up on the greatest legacy, the biggest legacy you could have, which is to be a, a critical part of God's plan of salvation. And the contrast is Boaz, who has a name in this story, is the one who gave up his legacy for the greater legacy of being a central player in God's redemptive plan, even though it would cost him greatly. And so we see as a, as a generous redeemer that Boaz gives Naomi and Ruth a name, an identity. Naomi is no longer just a wandering widow. Uh, Ruth is no longer just a poor uh, immigrant outsider widow that these women, 
become a critical part of the family line that would eventually birth the great kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ. That they, take, they get a place in the genealogy of Jesus through their children. They're given a name. They're given an identity. Now, what does this mean for today? God gives you land today. Ultimately, the promise of a land flowing with milk and honey. It's called the new heavens and the new earth. It's the promise of a land where there will be no suffering, a promise of land with no pain, a promise of land that is beautiful and glorious as God always intended for his children. That he promises you that. And that now this earth that will be remade and transformed into that new heavens, the new earth, that now we are part of bringing in that kingdom and that new heavens and new earth. Second, though, God gives you a new name. And I want you to hear from Isaiah 62, the way that God describes the new name that he gives you. Listen to this, Isaiah 62, one through three. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. The new name that you get, that Jesus gives you, is a new identity that is true and that exists apart from any externals or circumstances in your life. Let me explain this by giving you a few examples. If you base your identity, which is your name, if you base your identity on anything but a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, then you become that thing and you bear that nameless name. For example, if your children become your identity, meaning that they define you, that they give you your ultimate purpose, then you become a mother or a father, and that's it. If your career becomes your identity, meaning it defines you, it gives you your ultimate worth, then you become a successful businesswoman or a successful businessman, that's it. Uh, if, you, if your academic or athletic achievement becomes your identity, you become a scholar athlete, that's it. Uh, if, if your marriage becomes your identity, meaning that you, it, it defines you and it, and it gives you your ultimate purpose, you become a husband or a wife, that's it. In other words, if, if anything but your identity being based in a, a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, if it's anything else, you bear that nameless name. And what happens is when the Lord removes that external or if that external goes away or that circumstance goes away, you fall apart. You lose everything because your life has been based on an external. Your identity is based on an external. And if, the, and if it goes away, you're left to nothing. You're left nameless. Sports Illustrated, I shared this probably about a year ago. Sports Illustrated had named Ronda Rousey. This was back in 2015. The most dominant athlete in the world. 
And it was an appropriate title for what had happened in her life up until that point. Listen to this. She was the first U.S. woman ever to win an Olympic medal in judo. She was the youngest woman to ever qualify for the Olympics at age 14. She was consistently one of the top three ranked judo champions in the world before she transitioned to mixed martial arts. And then in mixed martial arts, she had an incredible run. She went 12 and 0. Only one of her opponents made it out of the first round. And then uh, one opponent made it out of the first round and eight of her 12 challengers were defeated within the first minute. Now, you know why Sports Illustrated called her the most dominant athlete in the world. Then November 2015 hit, and she lost, and she lost badly. And in an interview, right after she lost, listen to what she said. I was literally sitting there and thinking about killing myself. And at that exact second, I'm like, I'm nothing. What do I do anymore? And no one cares about me anymore without this. You see, her whole identity was inseparable from her image as the most dominant athlete in the world. And when she lost, and that image was gone, her identity was nothing because she bared a, a nameless name. And the point is this, that if you make anything but crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord as your identity, anything, you bear a nameless name and you're set up for that to happen. Right? That Jesus, as your generous redeemer, gives you a new name. He gives you a new identity that exists and is true apart from externals and apart from circumstances in your life. What kind of redeemer do we proclaim to ourselves and to our neighbors. First, a sacrificial redeemer. Second, a generous redeemer. And then finally, a gracious redeemer. A gracious redeemer. In verse 11, Ruth is compared to Rachel and Leah, right? Women who built up the house of Israel through their children. But then the elders say something really striking. And I don't know if you caught it in verse 12. They say, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Ruth is compared to Tamar. I didn't prompt it, but Jack and Clifton saying they were a mess up here and that we're all a mess is gonna play right into what we're talking about here because Tamar and Judah were a mess and I don't have time to go through that story but let me tell you this, Ruth and Tamar were both alike and also unlike each other. Let me tell you how they were alike. First, Tamar, like Ruth, was an outsider to God's covenant people who married into the family under doubtful circumstances. Tamar, like Ruth, lost her husband and had no child. Both Ruth and Tamar dressed themselves up in pursuit of a child in a future but this is where the similarity ends. You see, Ruth dressed up, but revealed herself to Boaz and was married and received a child legitimately through marriage. Tamar concealed her identity, pretended to be a prostitute, 
tricked Judah and had a child outside of marriage. And yet, the end result of both of these unions, legitimate and illegitimate, were children who in the providence of God were in the family line of Jesus. In other words, that would give birth one day day to Jesus, their descendant. Now, why does God do it this way? Jesus could have chosen to be descended from any line. Why in the world would he choose to be descended from a line of such messy and sinful characters like Judah and Tamar and an outsider like Ruth? Well, the answer comes in Matthew chapter one. In Matthew one, as he introduces his gospel, Matthew lists lists the genealogy of Jesus. And it includes Tamar and Ruth. And we're gonna see next week more questionable characters, very clearly sinful people that made poor choices and awful decisions and made a mess of things. And then over in verse 21 of Matthew 1, the angel says to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came to rescue sinners, people like his ancestors, people like us. That's why he was descended from a long family line of broken and sinful people. When Jesus was born into this world, he didn't come with special protective equipment on, like a scientist going into a lab to work with an Ebola virus. It's not what he did. He came into this world naked, naked, unprotected, not separating himself from his sinful ancestors. Why? Because he came to rescue them. That's why he came out of a line of sinners like you and me. And if we're shocked by the company he kept when he was alive, tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners, then then it's scandalous to see who he was surrounded by in his death, right? Two criminals on crosses. Jesus extends grace and mercy and he comes to rescue sinners. And that's his family line, a group of sinners that needed rescue. Think about Naomi, right? Chapter one of Ruth, right at the beginning, what do we learn about Naomi? She left the promised land with her husband Elimelech for greener pastures. And where did she go for greener pastures? Moab, this enemy godless country. And then 10 years later, when she comes back to Bethlehem, what's she do when she gets back? She's a bitter woman. She's a bitter woman. She's blaming God for her circumstances. How does God respond? He pursues her. He pursues her through the redeemer Boaz. He loves her and he fills her in a way that she could have never imagined And he does the same for you and me. He pursues sinners like you and me and fills us in a way that we could never have imagined through the great kinsman redeemer, Jesus Christ. Jesus loves to rescue you out of your sin when you don't deserve it. He's a gracious redeemer. He loves to rescue you out of your sin 
when you don't deserve it. January 24th, 1975, world-renowned pianist Keith Jarrett performed a live performance in the Cologne Opera House. What he ended up performing live went on to make it into an album that fall that became the best-selling piano album ever at that point. It became the, the best-selling solo jazz album ever. And you say, wow, must have been an amazing concert live concert, until you understand how it all went down. When he got there, he had requested a, a top-of-the-line grand piano. And I won't read you the name because I can't pronounce it, but it's a nice piano. Really good piano, concert piano that he requested. When he gets there, the opera house had made a mistake. And they had brought out on the stage a, a much lesser quality piano, a smaller grand piano that was used for rehearsals. And the, the uh, opera house coordinator said this, in, in, in looking back at what happened about the piano, she said, the substitute piano was completely out of tune. The black notes in the middle didn't work and the pedals stuck. It was unplayable. And she describes how Keith Jarrett sat down, he played a few notes. His producer came and sat down, played a few notes. And they circled around the piano a few times. And then his, his producer went up to the, the opera house coordinator and said, if you don't give us another piano, he's not playing tonight. Well, they didn't have another piano. So it turns out he did play on that out of tune, stuck pedal piano. Listen to what one of the music critics said as they watched him play. This is beautiful. Standing up, sitting down, moaning, writhing, Jarrett didn't hold back in any way as he pummeled the unplayable piano to produce something unique and beautiful. And let me remind you, this live performance became an album that was a bestseller. Another music critic said this, Mr. Jarrett turned the banal and familiar into something gorgeous and mysterious. Listen, Jesus Christ, your sacrificial, your generous, your gracious redeemer turns your out of tune, unplayable, messy life into a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord. Then he puts it on display for your neighbors and all the world to see that Jesus Christ, the great redeemer, would get all the glory. Let's pray. Father, your love for us is astounding. And we try to convince ourselves that we're lovable and we clean up our acts and we do a good few things thinking that somehow that might help in the redemption process. But Father, the truth is we are outsiders like Ruth. We're wanderers like Naomi that you have pursued Jesus, with your sacrifice and your generosity and your grace, you have taken sinners 
and made us into a crown of beauty in your hand. Father, would you help us to believe that? And Father, if there's those here this morning that don't think they're redeemable, that think they've made a mess of things, think that they're beyond salvation, would you remind them that that is exactly why you came in the person of Jesus? That Jesus, with great delight and great pleasure, you redeemed sinners. It's the greatest news we could ever hear. And it doesn't happen once. You do it every day, every moment, every hour. And so, Jesus, we stand in awe of who you are as our Redeemer. And we pray that you would pursue those in this room that haven't yet responded to you and that you would continue to pursue them until they are won over by your love. And Father, as we close in worship now, when we rejoice in the beautiful name of Jesus. And Jesus, would we sing to you as our great redeemer. We pray this in your matchless and your precious name. Amen.